Hello and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams, editor of SHG Logistics Magazine. I've managed to record this intro in between a meeting about our awards and a meeting about a round table we're holding this week. I'm in a room where hopefully no one can find me for a bit. September is a really busy month for us. We also partner with the FLTA on its safety conference and on the Safe Timber supplement, which hopefully you all received with your SHD Logistics September issue. Last year, David Cooper, Logistics Manager at Barfords of Butley, asked me for extra copies of the supplement to keep in the tea room at their operation. He said it was a really useful guide for his operatives. So if you too would like some extra supplements, please do drop me an email. Uh, my email is kirsty.adams at informa.com. This issue we have two very meaty features. First up is Will Machines Take Over? People and Automation. Guests include Google Home Assistant. Bonjour. Alex Harvey, Head of Robotics and Autonomous Systems at Cardo. John Sleeman, Lead Director, EMEA Logistics and Industrial Research at Jones Lang Salle. Bethany Favarg, Operations Manager at Novis. It is unlikely you're going to get a seven-year-old saying, I'd like to be involved in the movement of goods or people. The second feature is EU to plate, Brexit and food distribution. Guests include Shane Brennan, Incoming Chief Executive of the Food Storage and Distribution Federation. For 25 years odd, they've been able to say, the space is available if they need it. What they're starting to worry about, what if we can't have capacity to get this product through? Alongside Shane, I spoke to Chris Sturman, outgoing Chief Executive of the Food Storage and Distribution Federation. I've made an incredible number of friends, and I mean friends, real friends, mm. over this industry, mm. and it's keeping in touch with them. I also spoke to transport consultant Kirsten Tisdale, who's also one of our awards judges. So, so as I say, I think it's cost, 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 and I probably haven't even included all the costs there, Kirsty. But first, here's David Tran with the news. It's been a busy month for the logistics sector. House of Fraser's distribution facilities have closed yet again at the time of recording at its Wellingborough and Milton Keynes sites. This comes just days after having reopened after disagreements over delivery payment terms with House of Fraser's new owner Sports Direct and site operators XPO Logistics. The sites had reopened on August 24, according to the fashion news publication Drapers, but it now seems apparent the dispute has now flared up again. House Fraser took the decision to take its website down in August following a financial dispute with XPO, who were reportedly owed more than £30 million, a figure of which an undisclosed source representing XPO Logistics has since claimed as grossly exaggerated. The disagreement has resulted in XPO to stop accepting goods and processing deliveries for the retailer. Meanwhile, Costa Coffee's distribution operation could be set to benefit after Coca-Cola decided to take over the coffee chain in a deal worth nearly £4 billion from Costa's brand owner, Whitbread. Whitbread acquired Costa for £19 million in 1995 and has since grown to the country's largest coffee shop company and expanded its international presence. The move signals Coca-Cola's ambitions to expand its product portfolio into the hot drinks sector. 
the integration represents a unique strategic opportunity to combine the cost of brand with Coca-Cola's global scale product and distribution capabilities. And finally, Windsor Materials Handling has announced the business is expanding into the south coast following the acquisition of Southampton-based materials handling expert supplier Geolift. Beginning in Hull over 40 years ago, the Windsor network currently includes branches in Birmingham, Chelmsford, East Kilbride, Hull, Inningham, Nottingham, Peterborough, Sleaford, Slough, St Helens, Wakefield and Washington. The acquisition marks the opening of Windsor's 13th branch across the UK. And that's the news. Here's SHD's property editor, David Tame, with a news roundup in the world of logistics property. Right, it's September and it's back to school. Will it be a bumper Q3 or a bumpy Q3? It's very difficult to know and it gets particularly tricky for the logistics sector because it's trapped between the fast-moving world of retail and the rather slower-moving world of property. From an economic point of view, it's a bit like the Doppler effect of a speeding car. Um, Sounds of the economy move rapidly towards the logistics sector and appear to recede rather less rapidly. The effect is a confusing picture for warehouse operators. On the plus side, we've got plenty of good news. There are record rents being scored around the country. A particularly striking example came from Battersea, SW11. London rents are always high, but £30 a square foot is strikingly high. We're also seeing continued strong flows of capital into the industrial property market. Tokyo-based investors are the latest to make a splash in Birmingham's industrial market. They acquired a site for 189,000 square feet. We're also seeing demand so strong that operators of other types of property are abandoning those uses and heading instead for logistics. A particularly striking example came from the Rockingham Speedway track in the East Midlands. It's been hosting Speedway events for years, but not any longer. Now it's going to be repurposed for logistics floor space, possibly millions of square feet of it. That's a sign of how hot the market is. And yet on the other side, the retail sector couldn't look more dismaying. Uh, Only today, as I speak, we've had another retailer go into CBA process, which will limit its exposure to landlord debt. That's home-based who are going to shut 42 stores. They follow House of Fraser, Office Outlet, and half a dozen other high street names who've hit trouble over the last month. The most conspicuous example of trouble was House of Fraser, whose dispute with the retailer's former warehouse operator, XPO, has left red faces and a lot of unpaid bills by the look of it. So we've got these two pressures, one acting rather fast, the crumbling high street retail scene, the other acting rather slowly, the still very healthy property sector. What conclusion can you draw from these two conflicting pressures? Now that's where it gets very hard to say. One thing I have learnt over 30 years of writing about commercial property is that things are almost never what they look like. My guess is something else is going on in the economy and in the logistics market behind all this. What it is and how significant it is, we will discover later this autumn. Can a robot do my job?
experts found that less than 5% of jobs can be completely replaced by technology, though nearly every job involves tasks that robots could learn to do. Enter your occupation below to see how much of your work may someday be done by machines. There's been concern around what happens to people when warehouses become fully automated. It's not just warehouses where these concerns have been raised. Here's a clip from Radio 4 series, Will a Robot Take Your Job? This is science historian James Burke. Within 10 years, most low-skilled work will be done by machines. Within 20 years, middle management will also go once computers learn how to follow the decision processes of lawyers, bureaucrats, accountants and the like. And machine learning is getting easier as computers get faster and more powerful. Within 20 years, they'll also be the size of a grain of rice and embedded in everything. When I spoke to this month's podcast guests, they didn't focus too heavily on the rise of the machine. They flagged up the importance of collaboration between machine and human. In the next clip, you'll hear from Alex Harvey, Head of Robotics and Autonomous Systems at Ocado. Alex talks of how automation frees up humans to do jobs that use their cognitive abilities to work alongside machines and the virtuous cycle of embracing automation early. Automation has been truly key and a very important advancement in technology in terms of being able to increase the productivity of warehousing and logistics. And that trend will certainly continue to ramp into the future where we rely on ever smarter and more capable automation to do the highly repetitive jobs, freeing up people to spend more time using their cognitive ability to make decisions and to deal with the uncertainty in the world. Alex's point that we're freeing humans up to do roles which require decision-making sounds positive. It sounds collaborative. So what will we call these decision-making human roles? Do they already exist? I spoke to... Eric Fjellborg and I'm the CEO and founder of Quinix. Quinix is a workforce and management software solution. I was interested in hearing from Eric about the data and what it could tell us. When we met a couple of months back, we talked about the the new job roles that are emerging within logistics. You kindly offered to share some of the data your software has collated so that you could tell our listeners the type of new job roles that exist in logistics. We can certainly see that a lot of job titles and roles are emerging with more qualified tasks and responsibilities compared to previously. You know, for example, we can see roles of um, you know, innovation managers, of um, people having roles that are tightly connected to technology and how technology interacts with HR, and also roles that uh, have the purpose to continuously work with the efficiency of the logistic operations. And, and these roles have uh, you know, certainly increased over the past one to two years back. We can see as well, looking at subsets of the logistic industry, is that logistic e-commerce operations um, seems to have embraced most of these modern roles. We believe that that might be related to these operations being established more recently in, in time and having perhaps an easier time putting together an innovative operation from day one. And if you look at roles specifically um, around managing machines or robots and and artificial intelligence, we cannot really see that these roles have appeared 
to a large extent yet. However, we believe that the you know these roles certainly will increase over the next you know three to five years, and uh, we also believe that this will differ depending on you know perhaps a larger operation that will decide to have these type of roles in house, whereas smaller logistic operations uh, most likely will outsource this type of competence to other providers. Moving on to the trends that is related to the changes we see in, in, in our work is certainly the rise of the gig economy that seems to impact the logistic industry in pretty much every um, geography with increased percentage part-timers as, of the, uh, as a percentage of the total workforce. And just looking at the data, as I mentioned, we see the recently established e-commerce operations as fast movers, and we see the older, larger logistic companies seems to be perhaps moving a, a bit slower. However, we think that these operations will probably undergo quite you know, dramatic change over the next few years in order to stay relevant, implement new technology, and also you know, embrace machines for their logistic operations uh, and so forth. And that will subsequently probably also affect the roles that they have within the business. Human roles are changing as machines are embraced. But what if you take the humans away because of labour shortages or high rates of unemployment or Brexit? The driver shortage causes ongoing concern and it always has, I've been told. I spoke to John Sleeman about people and automation John is Lead Director, EMEA Logistics and Industrial Research at Jones Lang LaSalle, also known as JLL. He talks about some results unearthed in his recent research document, Labour and Automation and the Rise of Robots in Logistics. There's been quite a lot of stuff in the media over the last few years about how automated trucks will solve the driver shortage. In most cases, those automated trucks have still got drivers in them. The Standards Authority, the SAE, looks at this and, and they basically have a, a six-range scale for automated vehicles, 0 to 5, and anything below 4 has still got a driver in the cab, and even the most automated vehicles at 4 to 5 could still have drivers in them to mitigate risks. So actually that reinforces my general view that actually automated vehicles are probably not going to solve the driver shortage anytime soon, but will become you know, potentially more important down the line, but will still probably have a driver in them in most cases. JLL are property people. John talks about how more automation and less people in a warehouse could change the shape and feel of logistics property. If we see more automation, I think that we could get buildings which are taller but smaller than their manual counterparts. And that's because I think if you've got automated systems that can work efficiently, then they can make better use of the floor space so if we actually see a situation where robotics you know, move quite significantly, some of the things associated with lots of workers, you just won't need. So you won't need as much car parking space, you, know, you won't need as many staff amenities. We're not really seeing that at the moment, but that's the logic of if you saw a sharp reduction in number of workers, you could see some of those changes. And if you lost a lot of car parking spaces, you wouldn't need so much land, obviously, for a warehouse. In most cases where we see automated warehouses, you've still got, in some cases, quite a lot of automation and quite a lot of labour. And, and the labour is doing the things that they do best and the automation is doing the stuff that it does best. These more sophisticated decision-making roles sound like good career options to me. 
But we still have that problem, don't we, that young people aren't choosing logistics as a career of choice. It's just not visible enough. Thanks to many organisations like Think Logistics, Novus, Business on the Move, Talent in Logistics, logistics as a career is becoming more visible. But it's not just these organisations who can make a difference. I caught up with Bethany Favag. Bethany is Operations Manager at Novus, which is part of the CILT. Bethany talks about the type of language we use in the industry, which is actually putting young people off. I hold my hands up, guilty, to some of the offences in my very own SHD Logistics magazine. I have a responsibility to change that. Here's Bethany. So there's nothing wrong in itself with the word industry. Industry is a part of the economy or a group of companies that can be defined by activities or products. So for logistics, that's the movement of goods, the movement of goods and people, however you personally define it. Profession is a group of people within that, so those with a qualified skill set. So it's a bit like all fingers aren't thumbs, but all thumbs are fingers. Professionals work in an industry, but an industry is more than its professionals. Assuming that you understand that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the word industry. But of course, most people don't. So industry meaning activities or products means that we get this perception of trucks and sheds. It's what we do. So it takes away from the professional element of it, the fast-paced, exciting, challenging, well-paid world of logistics that is staffed by professionals. It reduces it down to trucks and sheds, which we know is part of logistics, but it oversimplifies it and means that it's less aspirational than some of the other professions like law or medicine. Is it a barrier to people entering the industry, do you think? Absolutely. The amount of uh, career shows that we do with Novus, where we start talking about the benefits of a career in logistics, and you will have parents saying, I don't want my daughter to be a lorry driver, I don't want my son to be a picker and packer in a warehouse. Now, when we're working at undergraduate level, of course, that's not the level that we're looking to promote. We respect that that's very important within the profession and we need people at that level. But there are other jobs that require different skill sets that the public has no awareness of because they believe it's the lorries they see on the road and the distribution centres that they see by the side of them. And that is it. So until we can change the perceptions of stakeholders, teachers, careers, advisors, parents, it's much better, in our opinion, to be referring to the profession so it becomes more analogous to law, medicine, accountancy and seen as desirable by young people and the people that influence them. What can we, the profession, do to help change that? So a really quick win is changing the language that we use, calling it a profession or a sector, um, calling ourselves logistics professionals, and I guess trying to help us as the Chartered Institute to think about a one-word descriptor. Uh, you hear children say, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a teacher. It is unlikely you're going to get a seven-year-old saying, I'd like to be involved in the movement of goods or people. <laughs> Um, we need something that crystallises it, that makes it aspirational. And 
CILT have an aspiration that one day we will have chartered logisticians in the same way you have chartered accountants. They're helping us to think about the language and the information behind that is really important and we love to have those conversations. But a really quick win is starting to be aware of the effect that language has on people's attitudes in the wider world and changing industry to sector or profession. I'm going to ask you one more question. What other language is unhelpful that you hear in our industry? That is a really good question. Yeah. It's less the language that I hear and more the way in which we talk. Logisticians, my preferred word, have a propensity to explain at length the intricacies of what it is that we do, which is not necessarily using language to inspire the next generation. Short, snappy, effective and passionate is where we need to get to, which I respect is really difficult because many other professions benefit from TV coverage and public awareness. We will always have to do a little bit more explanation as we are a hidden profession. But trying to come up with ways that make our sector sound exciting, fast-paced, well-paid, technologically driven, global, is much more important than the intricacies that sometimes we get ourselves entangled in. Fast-paced, well-paid, technology-driven, global, both people and automation are at the heart of this very exciting profession. I look forward to reporting how this collaboration between humans and machines evolves further. Bye-bye. See you later. Have a good one. This episode is sponsored by IMHX 2019, which takes place at the NEC Birmingham from the 24th to the 27th of September 2019. Next year, IMHX will feature a trade pavilion dedicated to showcasing the services offered by third-party logistics companies. This pavilion will be hosted by the United Kingdom Warehouse Association, the UKWA. Peter Ward, CEO of UKWA, comments, Due in part to the sustained growth of e-commerce, which is driving demand for specialist order fulfilment services, third-party logistics is growing at a significant rate. And the UKWA Pavilion will be the place where IMHX visitors can meet some of the leading companies in the sector. To find out more about IMHX, please visit www.imhx.net. Do you think we'll see riots on the streets over French camembert? How about Spanish oranges? In the last couple of months, there's been a lot of talk on stockpiling of food and medicine. And in the last couple of weeks, the government published its guidance on a no-deal Brexit scenario. In the midst of all this, I interviewed these two. I'm Shane Brennan, and I'm incoming Chief Executive at the Food Storage and Distribution Federation. And I'm Chris Sturman. I'm the outgoing Chief Executive of the Food Storage and Distribution Federation. The FSDF's new chief exec has lots of experience dealing with government. Most recently, he worked for the Country Land and Business Association, 
which is a trade body representing the interests of people who own land in the countryside, mostly farmers. The week after we met, he was due to meet Secretary of State for Transport, Chris Grayling. Brexit is a big, highly complex challenge, but as Shane explains, FSDF members aren't losing sleep over it. Brexit is basically a logistics challenge. What's probably most interesting, positive that you can take from that, is that people are talking about logistics properly for the first time in about 20, 25 years. Logistics has been a victim of his own success. When you talk to the members, I'm not picking up sleepless nights amongst the sort of leaders in the industry about Brexit no. at the moment. They're sort of, they're used to taking things in their stride. Mm-hmm. They're seeing some of the hysteria with a bit of a wry eye, I would say, around some of the issues around particular media for the last two or three weeks about Brexit stockpiling. Mm-hmm. And actually, they're probably more interested in some of the more everyday issues. I mean, mm-hmm. the workforce shortages mm-hmm. are absolutely yeah. front and centre. And those are Brexit related, but they're actually just generally related to the growth in the economy, the lack of the high levels of employment there is in the economy, mm-hmm. the high performance of the economy in places like countries in Eastern Europe. Whilst Brexit has accelerated that problem, mm-hmm. it was already a problem. It was a structural problem that was was, was at play mm-hmm. um, there. And as Chris has already mentioned, issues around climate change and mm-hmm. energy use mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. fuel use. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to London and you hear some of the things that the people are saying in, in the London political debate, it's pretty scary if you're anyone trying to provide logistics support and trying to get stuff into shops, hospitals and schools mm-hmm. in London because this idea that it can happen without trucks and vehicles is pretty worrying, I would say. So those challenges are probably more front and centre, they're more worrying to some mm-hmm. of the operators than actually just dealing with Brexit. At the time of the interview, there'd been lots of stories in the national press about the stockpiling of food. Headlines included ones like this from the Daily Mail. Troops will deliver food, medicine and fuel if Britain crashes out of EU without a deal as supermarkets issue warning to stockpile essential items. But there was also a story about how Hackney Council has pretty much banned HGVs starting 3rd of September. This highlights the point Shane makes about more pressing issues in Brexit. I asked Chris the ifs and hows of stockpiling food. Stockpiling of what? Because we've got frozen food, so we've mm-hmm. got a lot of that already. Most mm-hmm. of the members are pretty well full anyway. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, Christmas is coming, isn't it? So what would we stockpile? Mm-hmm. Frozen food, tin goods, ambient products, fine. But the big issue, as far as Brexit is concerned, are the food products we eat every day. The deli products that come in from the rest of Europe. Fresh produce, mm-hmm. you know, cheese dairy produce and fresh fruit and all, all of those things which have a very short shelf life. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to stockpile it anyway because, it, because frankly, it will go off. Mm-hmm. You know, it will be useless. And any delay whatsoever, I mean, what we do need to do is to make sure that those vehicles that are coming into the UK and they're pretty well all EU registered ones mm. do get through without delay because one of the big issues coming through now are rumours that Foreign holders are beginning to say, we don't want to come to Britain. Who's going to bring it? British holders going back into the, into the international market? Mm, I think not. We could yes. do all sorts of different uh, you know, combinations of mm-hmm. sets of circumstances and make all sorts of planning. But frankly, mm-hmm. is it worth our while? We might as well, as Shane said, yeah. get on with the job. Yes. As we do, logisticians are amazing people, yes. right? Yeah. They, they bust a gut and they deliver and they do it every day, mm-hmm. despite the rain, snow, hot weather, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, melting tarmac. We get things done, despite it all. 
A couple of days after the interview with Chris and Shane, I spotted some comments on LinkedIn from Kirsten Tisdale in response to a post from Alan McKinnon. Alan is Professor of Logistics at Kerner Logistics University in Hamburg. His post was entitled, Will Britain need to stockpile food for a hard Brexit? Kirsten made some interesting comments, so I thought I'd get her on the podcast. Hi, I'm Kirsten Tisdale. I'm a logistics consultant. My company's Arisia Limited, and I specialise in strategic planning and business growth, particularly projects that need analysis and modelling. Kirsten has considered different sets of circumstances and adds a bit of maths to the conversation in regards to queues and delays. Kirsten, what are the costs and implications of trucks queuing at the borders post-Brexit full of fresh produce? The answer to that is cost, cost, cost. Alan McKinnon recently did a a blog which lots of people looked at on LinkedIn, which used an example of a four-day delivery from fruit to Italy, potentially taking six days rather than four, introducing a two-day delay. Although that's hopefully doom-mongering two-day delay, and it's a great example from, from a math point of view, because a trip now takes six days instead of four. In the time that you do three trips before, you can now only do two trips. So you either need fifty percent extra trucks, or there's a, there's a 33% reduction in the work that each truck can do. Although we hope that the, the length of the delay that, that Alan sort of chose is extreme, as I say, it's a great example from the maths point of view. I took the figures from the um, Department of Transport website about the number of trucks that cross the channel every year, um, which is of the order of 2 million, and looked at where they were coming from and what the implications of a five-hour delay might be. And Dr. Kay Hahn of Imperial College calculated that if checks took an average of four minutes, the queue on the M20 would reach over 29 miles, resulting in a five-hour delay. So that's where I I got that from. The UK imports 30% of its food from the EU, and my model would suggest that that would result in a loss of capacity in the pipeline of 18%, and a reduction in food available in this country of 5%, and that's not just EU food, that's all our food, 5% less. And that's not just one week, that's week on week, assuming that the delays continue. Now, obviously, you've got the cost of the delay. You've got the cost then of market forces, because if it's loss of capacity, then prices are likely to go up. And then you've got costs associated with then just trying to incentivise people to want to come to bring fruit and vegetables to the UK, because why would you choose to do a job where you're going to spend um, five hours on each side of the channel in a queue when you could go and do work within you yeah, that, that wouldn't require that. So, so as I say, I think it's cost, 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 and I probably haven't even included all the costs there, Kirsty. Shane formally takes over this month as Chris moves on to a new project with NATO. Shane has been on a tour of member sites in the weeks prior to our meeting. It's interesting to hear what his members have been saying. Basically, Great. conversations are happening between our members and their customers. There's a lot of talk about the conversation they have with government. Chris has been talking to government for the last two years, but actually that's not the important conversation. The important conversation is what's going on between the retailers, manufacturers and their third party suppliers. They are talking about how would we reconfigure this supply chain if those conversations have been happening for some time. And what's interesting is it is a different dynamic, as it's being described to me, to what it has been 
manufacturers and suppliers have been able to be able to say for 25 years odd, they've been able to say mm. the space is available if they need it. And they can change and shift around very quickly from one minute to the other. It's basically all on, pretty much on their term. What if we can't have capacity to get this product through? And they're asking that question of our members. Mm-hmm. And our members are saying to them, well, there are obviously ways to solve that, but we actually start need to talk about, you know, contractual arrangements that extend over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. So actually we do have a three-year arrangement or a five-year arrangement rather than a short-term arrangement in order for you to have that certainty, to build that certainty into your business and then we provide that certainty for us. So that's the kind of conversation that's being had. So, so lots of planning, but it's you know, no obvious. I asked Shane what he plans to do first as chief exec. He talks about all the opportunities there is for members and for the organisation. He also plans to build on existing advice and guidance. He also wants to communicate better. Shane is talking to his FSDF members, but he's also talking to industry colleagues at the Food and Drink Federation and the British Frozen Food Federation on topics such as Brexit. If you would like to contribute to the conversation, you can email him on shane.brennan at fsdf.org.uk. You can also read his latest blog on LinkedIn, which I recommend. You can also catch an article which features Shane and Chris in the September issue out now. I'd like to end this feature with some final thoughts from the very dedicated, very knowledgeable Chris Derman, who finishes at the FSDF this month. I think the big issue is how I've made an incredible number of friends, and I mean friends, real friends, Mm. over this industry, and it's keeping in touch with them, and at the same time, not sort of, you know, you gain quite a lot of experience and knowledge, and I wouldn't want to lose that or stop using it. Thank you to all our guests. In next month's episode, we'll be at the Logistics Awards talking to this year's winners. So please do join us and find out why they're so good and why they won.